Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can find the show online at buildingthefutureshow.com or follow me on Twitter at Building Show. I'm excited to announce that I'm now a brand ambassador for the Business Rock Summit in Manchester, England, April 21st and 22nd, where Steve Wozniak is headlining. More details at business-rocks.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Chris Cummings, CEO of Swiftwing Ventures and founder of Pass It Down. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for welcoming me. Yeah, like I'm you have quite an impressive background and I'm glad that you took the time out of your busy schedule to actually record and be on the show with me. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate having the opportunity to uh, to come and just have a discussion about technology. Sure. No, I, I think that's awesome. So maybe kind of before we kind of get into what you're doing now, maybe let's cover where you grew up. Sure, absolutely. So I uh, I grew up in, in two places in my uh, education years, okay, through 12 years. I grew up in St. Louis and then moved to Louisiana for uh, middle school and high school. Okay. And fell in love with Louisiana. It's a place with a lot of culture, good food, good music. Sure. And um, I couldn't pass up some really good scholarship opportunities. So I went down to LSU and double majored in political science and international relations, and I uh, actually stayed there to get my law degree. Oh, wow. So I'm it's curious. It's not, not that impressive, I tell you. It just means I like uh, I like talking. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> that Now you're on radio, so it's good. <laughs> no, so, so I'm kind of curious then, what kind of drew you to that path, and then kind of how did you go get into technology? Sure. Um, I was always... Uh, I was always interested in in politics from a young age, and uh, I read everything I could get my hands on. Okay. And so, uh, when I was in high school, uh, after I contradicted a teacher, they put me on the debate team, and uh, I, I fell in love with debate. I ended up doing and competing in debate in high school and in college, which sort of led me down the path of uh, political science, and then eventually going to law school. And just really became fascinated with the world of communication and the uh, the world of politics. Okay, interesting. So, so then, how did you kind of get into technology? Sure. Yeah, you know, my family is divided literally into you take my dad's side of the family where everyone is an entrepreneur. Okay. And uh, very, very stubborn. They've all gone their own path, but they've all been entrepreneurs, all created businesses. My grandfather started a bank. My uncle runs um, all the banks. My father's been a lifelong entrepreneur. So I always grew up in this world of seeing people start their own businesses, and uh, and some of those being technology businesses. And then on my mom's side, everyone was artists. My grandmother was an artist. My uncle is an architect and an artist. My mom loved art. So I grew up with a love of design, and I was always fascinated by um, design and technology, particularly user experience, UI, just what is it about uh, a piece of technology when it's designed the right way that you automatically know what to do with it sure. without having to have your hand held? And so um, that was the area that I was kind of always drawn to in my own time is just um, reading about user experience, really falling in love with uh, what good design would mean in that regard. And so my dad um, wanted to create a technology company because he was traveling 300 days a year speaking for a living. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was on the road constantly, and he uh, he was tired. You know, I, I'd be tired. I think sure. everyone would be tired after traveling that much. And so he wanted to find a way to be able to teach online. Oh. This was about 
10 years ago. So, uh, so e-learning was a pretty new field then. And so him and I co-founded a uh, e-learning company called Whoople. Oh, okay. W-O-O-P-L-E. And I'll post that in the show notes as well for people. Absolutely. And uh, that's when I really came down to starting to design my uh, my very first uh, e-learn uh, website web application. Okay, interesting. So it's interesting. So you basically started your first online business with your dad around an I- idea and a, I guess a, his own need, and then you kind of. So it was the first. He was kind of the first client, then I guess, or or. I would say he created it to solve his own pain point. Okay. You know, yeah. He knew that he wanted to be able to teach. And at the time with e-learning, it was interesting. Um, the way that all the other e-learning sites worked is they would charge you to host videos by the video. Uh, okay. And then they would upsell you and say, well, if you want to get your video uploaded in a week instead of two weeks, we're going to charge you a fee. Sure. And if you don't send it to us in the right format, we're going to charge you to convert it. So e-learning companies at the time were basically upselling you left and right. And you were basically held hostage because if you wanted to communicate a lesson to a client or put something up, uh, you didn't really have the flexibility to be able to say, I want to do this on my own right now. Okay. Yeah, no. Yeah, totally. Like if you, I'm just trying to think back to, to that period of time and you're totally right. I remember those days. And so... So you launched this thing, your dad's using it. At what point did you kind of decide that let's open this up and, and let other people, you know, kind of pay us and, and use it as a platform for their own videos and training? You know, that was a, a pretty early design decision because okay. I think the realization that we, we had is that if uh, we were being held hostage, so was everyone else too. Right, Okay. And so when we designed Whoople, uh, we designed it with the features to essentially be a sandbox. Uh, we would give you all the tools to be able to add uh, all the users you want right there on the spot, to add all of your own videos, to create your own tests. So you essentially were given uh, on the back end the keys to be able to do whatever you wanted without having to pay a fee uh, per video, per fee. There was just one flat fee for us to be able to give you your own educational platform. Okay, interesting. And and so basically the platform is for me to educate other people or like I checked out the site, it sounds like it's a little bit more maybe internal communications as well when you want to edu- educate your team. It's essentially an internal communication tool. You're, you're, you're right in that regard. So. Uh, for example, we've had um, Allstate Insurance who used it to provide their internal certification for over 100,000 employees for four oh, wow. years. That's crazy. That's awesome. Like th- that many and a, such a big name. We were we were uh, very lucky in that regard. And we, uh, we do a lot of work with Nissan. Uh, oh, we've done okay. certification with General Motors. We've actually done a lot of work with um, a number of companies in Canada, Allstate Canada, uh, primarily okay. a lot in the automotive field. Interesting. So do you kind of hustle those um, kind of cus- or clients or did they kind of come to you or a little bit of both? It was a little bit of both. You know, uh, my, my dad had a background teaching and so uh, that always helps when you're able to uh, build on a prior relationship to say, hey, look, I know sure. that you have a need to, uh, to be able to train your employees and to be able to do so in a cost-effective way. I would also say that there's been a, a transition in a lot of uh, business fields with how they do training. 
I think that it went from being all live events mm-hmm. to uh, to a thought where people were cutting corners and said, oh, let's do everything online. And that's that's never something we would actually recommend because I don't think you can ever replace a um, the experience of a live event. Sure. I like to think of it as uh, we, we, we promote a balance. Uh, it's kind of like in school. I mean, you hearing something for the first time from a great teacher will always make an impact, but you really learn something when you're able to go back and study and rewatch it and relearn. And that's really why we view e-learning as such an effective tool. It'll never replace us teaching you the first time, but when you need to be able to go back to really solidify it and uh, make it real, it's, it's always there for you. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think it's interesting too, because it's it's really, especially if you have hundreds or thousands of people, especially across, you know, different countries or or the world, it, it it's definitely nice to have everything in one place, right? And these big organizations, that's probably a huge problem that you're you guys are solving for them, especially on their training side. Absolutely. We like to think so. And uh, I, I would say internal communications itself is probably the biggest problem uh, most corporations face once they reach a large enough size is how do we communicate a message clearly um, that's divided among uh, state lines, country lines. Uh, you know, many corporations, you think of them as one corporation, but really, if they're in the United States, for example, they have to communicate opt-in 50 separate messages based around 50 states' laws. Mm, yeah, fair. Yeah, that's true. I That's interesting. I I guess, like, you don't really think about that stuff until you're kind of in the midst of it and trying to sort these kind of things out. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it, uh, it creates a very interesting structure when you're trying to build a technology product to you know, help deliver communication for a large corporation. Because really and truly, they need the ability to build a, a structure and a, a hierarchy into that system based around uh, cities, states, uh, different groups. And so there's a lot that goes into designing something to be able to accommodate that. Sure. So if I'm a company and I, and I want to kind of sign up with you guys, what's like, what is, what do I kind of have to do? Do I have to have my own videos and stuff kind of recorded or do I basically just sign up and then I can start creating courses right away? Sure. So uh, a couple of different things. If you already have uh, videos that have been recorded, then you could sign up and you can upload those videos and start distributing those to whoever uh, you want to receive those videos and being able to test on those. And if you don't have the videos, it gives you a great opportunity to start creating your own. Or if you want help, then we actually offer that as a service where you can come to us and we'll help you create content. Because I think the other thing that we, um, we, we try to help with is that Training someone live, which means you might have a, a videotape that's an hour long from a live event, or you may want to think you can take what you do in a live event, it's not going to be as effective online. People's sure. attention spans are getting shorter. People are used to watching videos that are you know, one to four, two to five minutes in length. Mm-hmm. And so um, often, even if you do have video content, it needs to be repurposed to be able to be effective for people online. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I always joke in the office that I have the attention span of like a goldfish because I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I totally get that. <laughs> I think we all do. I mean, we're, we're, we're more and more the way that we receive content is uh, it's, it's stimulation overflow. So uh, it's a changing the way that we that we learn and we like to learn. And if you're not able to uh, accommodate that, then you're going to have issues with the effectiveness of what you do. Sure. No, I, I, I totally agree. So you kind of have a bunch of things on the go. So you had Whoopal running running, and it's going and it's been around for, for a long period of time. So 
at what point did you decide to kind of get into uh, Swiftwing Ventures? Sure. So I had a background again in, in technology, and so uh, Swiftwing Ventures was looking for a, for a new CEO, and uh, based on the the background that I had, they approached me to say, "Look, we've made." Um, investments in about 10 different companies and we really need someone to be able to come in and provide some oversight for these investments and I like uh, technology I like entrepreneurs and startups in particular because you get to work with a lot of very passionate people every day sure uh, to to start a company you got to be a little crazy and you have to really believe in what you're doing and so that's the exact type of person I like to work with and it seemed like a great opportunity to be able to help a lot of people with um, something that they really believed in and to help them tell their story. Sure, and I guess just the fact that you have kind of a, a law background is probably extremely beneficial because you can kind of coach startups into, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa you, need, you need documentation or legal documentation <laughs> around this because like, I think a lot of people forget how important having the proper legal documentation is when, you know, at kind of even the very early stages of doing a startup. Do you it, agree with that? Very much so. You know, there's a balance that has to be had. There's okay. um, there's definitely a balance between being too cautious, which I always have to be careful not to do with being an attorney because it can prevent oh, you fair. from taking some leaps and jumps that you should. Okay. But there are some fundamental things that you have to get down at the start of your company or you're going to end up in huge trouble later. Can you uh, maybe outline those for, for the listener? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think the uh, the first thing is that when you are creating a company, you need to make sure that the partners you choose to partner with um, are ones that you, you want to be in bed with, essentially. Uh, because for good or for bad, these are the people that you're going to be legally tied to for years to come. And so uh, you need to outline at the very beginning what are your responsibilities as a partner because uh, you, that's what leads to a lot of major conflicts. And I would say the vast majority of companies that fail in the startup stage fail because of a conflict between the partners. Fair enough. So, for example, if one partner is supplying the, uh, the funding, but the other partner is supplying, um, say, the intellectual property or the work, that can lead to an interesting relationship or a potential conflict because one may feel like the other's not working or providing enough mm, based on what they're doing. So I would say that first off, um, outline what your roles are, what are your responsibilities, what are you supplying to the relationship. Clearly outline what percentage each person has in the company. So there's not a conflict on that point later on. And what are not your responsibilities just when you start, but going forward. Sure. No, I, I think that makes a, lo a lot of sense. And I think, like, would you get a lawyer to kind of draft that up? Or do you think it's just fine to just kind of both get a document, outline kind of those points, and then just both sign it? Or like how formal, I guess, should it be? You know, as an attorney, I'm always inclined to say you should you should work with sure. an attorney. But the, uh, the, the better thing I would say is that in a lot of places, um, they have support centers, um, accelerators, uh, people that are set aside to help startups. And often one of the services that they'll provide is legal services for a startup. Okay. So I would look in your local city and see if there's a, a local accelerator, a small business development center, some type of an organization like that that can help subsidize the cost because they want to incentivize you to start a company. Sure. That's their, their ultimate goal. 
and uh, starting a company is expensive, so it's a lot easier and more affordable if you can use one of those resources to get some uh, cheaper legal resources. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense, and that's really good advice. The uh, second thing I would tell you is that uh, get your trademarks, your copyrights uh, knocked out at the beginning. Okay. You, you, you don't want to start a company, uh, put a lot of funds into it, build a website, build your brand around something, and then realize, hey, I'm going to be in trouble down the road with this. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Nobody wants to get sued before you're even really making money, right? It makes sense that you'd be surprised uh, how many times you run into uh, that, that situation occurs. Sure. So when you guys are kind of looking at, well, maybe before we, we talk about that, I'm kind of curious then, what types of companies do you invest in? Well, you know, the first thing I'll say is that uh, the investments that were, were made were made prior to me being here. Okay. Um, so I, I can't necessarily speak to uh, what they were exactly looking for. I can tell you, though, why I think the companies that were invested in were good investments. Okay. No, that's uh, interesting. There, there's one in particular that, uh, that I would talk about. It's called Servature, S-U-R-V-A-T-U-R-E. Okay. And the company's basic premise is a better way to do surveys because truthfully, no one likes taking surveys. Nope. Uh, I think the average completion rate on a survey is less than 5%. It may, in fact, be less than 3%. Oh, wow. I mean, we, we're bombarded with surveys left and right. They often take a considerable amount of time to do, and... A, uh, a very smart professor at UT uh, by the name of Jen wanted to create a survey that people would actually enjoy taking. And okay. so he made surveys interactive. So instead of me asking you 12 questions, it'll ask you one question about um, what are the most important things to you when you stay at this hotel? Okay, interesting. And it'll have 12 boxes at the top and you drag and drop those in. And just by making that survey interactive, they've been able to have a completion rate. The lowest completion rate they've had is uh, 70%. Oh, wow. Holy jeez. Wow. Yeah, because like anytime I get like a receipt or something, it's like take this survey, I'm just like crumple and throw it in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the funny thing to me, I didn't know you even had a name. Uh, you know that experience you get when you get to like question for the survey and you yeah. realize it's going to stretch on to infinity. So you pick uh, like a, an answer like C and you decide to, to bubble it in as fast as you can down the board. Totally. Yep. It's called flatlining. And okay. uh, it actually has that term because it's like a heartbeat that it stops. And so hmm. the, uh, the, the funny thing is that I would say that most companies still will do surveys. They'll probably do your typical survey monkey survey. Totally. Uh, but if I if I ask them any of these questions, they're like, oh yeah, you're right. No one likes taking surveys. The data is probably bad. But so so why survey if what you're getting is inaccurate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so and so that's why I think that this uh, that Servature was such a good investment because it's a, a smart company that solves a real problem. And uh, the other thing it does that I think is really really cool is uh, on the back end, it tracks the user behavior. So it, it tracks which answer of the 12 do you pick first and how long did it take you to pick it. Oh, interesting. So it's able to prioritize. If you say that five things are the most important to you, it can tell you which of the five really is the most important of those five. Right. And then based on like everybody taking the survey, maybe certain things are more important than other things. Absolutely. Yeah. And then they're able to put that on a chart. So they're able to say to a, a company or an organization, this is really and truly where you should focus your attention. And even though uh, you may have a lot of responses saying that this is super important to people, in all actuality, uh, that's not really the case. And so this summer they did, um, uh, I think over 
100,000 surveys. They did all the surveys for Bonnaroo. Oh, wow. Holy. And if you're uh, and if you're thinking of how can you get people going to a festival to take a survey, you better make it interactive because they're <laughs> not going to be the people there coming through the gates. Very much so. No, that's awesome. That And do you know the percentage of people that actually took it? I would have to, uh, to to go look at the numbers, but I know it was it was pretty impressive. Wow. Because if I hand you an iPad and I say, hey, will you take this one question survey? Everyone's like, sure, uh, I'll take a, a question survey because that's that's not the, ex- the typical experience that you get with a survey. Sure. And and just being able to drag and drop really and truly, being able to to touch the survey is what makes all the difference in the world. Sure. No, that's that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like a taking an a concept and just basically modernizing it, I guess, is the easiest way and simplest way to put it. Absolutely. And and really getting to uh, to just the point of what is the average survey completion? And if it's below 5% in any field, I would say if it's below a number a lot higher than that, there's probably a much better way to do it. Sure. That makes sense. So is there any other kind of companies that you got, you want to cover? Sure. So uh, a company, it's not a company that we started, but a, um, a, a nonprofit that we really believed in that we started okay. is a, uh, a nonprofit called TechTown. Okay. It's a uh, educational organization that teaches children from 7 to 17 robotics, programming, videography, design, and 3D printing all under one roof. That's awesome. I wish I, can I take that now? What's the age limit? <laughs> <laughs> You you would be amazed actually at how many uh, how many parents uh, grandparents come in and you know they, they walk in and it's technology um, it's like a tech every toy that you could ever imagine under one place and they all want to play with it they all say if only I had this when I was a kid totally that that's how I feel uh, and I'm only 28 and I and I look and it's amazing how quickly technology grows sure. Do, do you guys, so, act, I'm like, I'm like, not really kidding. Do you guys have like adult nights or something? <laughs> <laughs> we, we actually have those coming. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, both separate adult nights. And uh, we're also going to be doing, uh, we have nights where parents can come through uh, with their kids and do the activities together because, you know, the there's a couple of interesting problems that happen. Uh, parents often think their kids are just playing. They don't really grasp or realize that, you know, your child when they're playing uh, Minecraft and then programming things it can do in the background is actually learning a real skill that can get them a job. Totally. Uh, so if we can take the parent through that experience with the child, it uh, it awakens the parent to realize, no, my child is not just playing a video game. My child is actually learning. Sure. And that leads to a, to a better support back at home. No, for sure. Like I I love that whole space. There's a bunch of kind of companies that are you know building little cheap computers that and then they show you kind of how to quickly program something on this you build this little robot and if you hit commands you know you can like turn on the lights or like turn on his eyes that are lights and stuff like that and i i love that right and you see the uh the new raspberry pi that they just yes yes five dollar at home you know it's amazing that there are companies out there that are making it possible for anyone to be able to learn these skills totally. uh, from any economic background. And I'm, I'm very, very thankful to see those companies that exist because uh, that's really the, the direction we need to head in. No, I totally agree. And I, I always tell like kids or, or whatnot, like I'm 32 and I always tell kids if they kind of ask us, just like, you should be learning how to program now. You might not ever be a programmer, but at the end of the day, you'll always have something to fall back on. 
It's almost Absolutely. like a trade nowadays. And I, I don't mean that in a negative way. Like, I, I think it, it's awesome. Like, like I think more and more people need to think of it as like a trade. I, I think it's it's this thing that's like super, super important. And, and like the jobs of the future, if you can program even just a little bit or you understand it, you will understand software and, and just even like how to use software and kind of technology going forward so much better, even if it's just at a basic level. Even you absolutely. Even if it's not something that you're you not even if you're not a programmer. Totally. Uh, you know, Great Britain got some pushback, but uh, last year they were the first country to announce that they were going to uh, require an hour of coding. Um, I think it was an hour of coding every day in their schools. Maybe really? uh, And they got pushed back because the teacher said, "We don't really know how to do this. We're not ready for it. It's not necessary." But I, I think that there's starting to be momentum to realize that. As you put it, learning how to program is really the language that that people need to know uh, going into the future. Sure. No, I I think that's awesome, and and I and that's kind of why I love what you guys are doing with that, and you know, especially trying to get kids involved. And I remember this this sounds really kind of nerdy, but I, I love the nerdy stuff. Is like I remember <laughs> going to like science camp as a kid, and uh, you know, it was a few days long, and. Yeah, it was we were building little things and we built some stuff where you could like connect we built like little circuit boards and you had to connect them to batteries to to you know turn on the lights and whatnot but it was just kind of like an early version of kind of what you're talking about and i i would love that you know absolutely and, and you know i think that uh it's sort of a modern evolution and a more sustainable version of uh discovery museums like the ones you're talking about because uh, you you would go and you would get the experience and you'd have fun, but often those exhibits wouldn't change too much. Totally. But I, but I think that if you can place all the different forms of technology under one roof and you can make the cost low enough, then you can provide uh, exposure to a lot of different areas of technology. And that's what's important. You, you, you need children to be able to have a chance to, to see so they can make better decisions and what they want to learn. Um, Sure. And the, I mean, the cool thing is that five years ago, a 3D printer was incredibly expensive. And, and don't get me wrong, they're still expensive today. But I mean, I think the next five or 10 years, um, it'll entirely be possible that we'll have uh, a 3D printer in our homes the same way we have a normal printer for paper. Totally. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So it's called, they're called Tech Town? It's called, uh, it's called Tech Town, yes. Okay. So, so where are their um, physical locations now? So right now we have one physical location in okay. Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's okay. a twenty-three thousand square foot facility, and in the uh, in summer we offer summer camps, and we taught over uh, seven hundred kids this summer, okay. uh, which we're really really proud of. And uh, during the school year, it operates um, as a, a I, I hate the word field trip because field trip implies that you go once and then you you don't go back in the school sure. year. Uh, we have schools that are coming and bringing their kids every week to be really? able. To these technology skills that's awesome we'll come in and spend one to two hours a week and they may spend that uh the first week of the month learning 3d printing the second week learning circuitry the third week learning programming and so we're able to uh, provide education to kids in areas uh, in a cost-effective way and and it makes sense for the schools too because uh i can't even tell you the amount of schools that have said you know we bought these 3d printers but you know they're gathering dust because no one knows how to use them sure and so it's a it's a way to be able to kind of fill in a gap that exists right now in the school system, but uh, also make the kids' educational experience at school better because the skills they learn in programming are going to help them in math. Totally. If we're able to help teach you communication skills, it'll help you in all your classes. 
No, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, are you guys rolling out other uh, across different cities? So we're in talks right now uh, with a number of different mid-sized cities to be able to bring uh, tech towns around the country. And uh, our long-term goal is really around the world. We, we really believe that the model works to be able to uh, teach all these things under one roof because of the collaborative experience that you get. And so I, I think in the next five years, you'll definitely start to see uh, new tech towns, which you're very excited about. Sure. I would love one in my city in Edmonton. I know I'm in Canada, but I would love that. <laughs> oh, we, we, we would love to see them everywhere. So I just need to take a trip out there. <laughs> sure. No, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of curious then, how would you, would you give any advice to people trying to pitch a, a VC? You know, it. I actually uh, attended a event on this uh, during the startup week we held in Chattanooga in October. And the, okay. the interesting thing is that um, it was this exact same question and there was a panel of uh, six different venture capitalists and all six disagreed uh, very, very strongly uh, with <laughs> one another. So the interesting thing is there's not necessarily a correct answer. I'm not going to tell you there's one way to pitch a VC. Sure. But what I will tell you is to do your homework. Okay. Uh, not every venture capitalist invests in everything. I think a, often good VCs will have an area that they know that they're very strong in. So they may say that we invest in biotech companies. Uh, we invest in uh, companies that exclusively do 3D printing or in the education space. So I think you need to uh, look at your idea. You need to look up your competitors. And you should look at where your competitors are getting their funding. Sure. Because no, that, that might make sense for good people to go after because they're going to understand the industry and have those relationships that you need. So I, I think that doing your homework is is going to help you make uh, better decisions about who you speak with. And it'll also show the venture capitalists that um, you're serious about, <coughs> excuse me, being a, uh, a good uh, company that they would be interested in because you've done your research, you've done your homework. Sure. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think kind of people forget about that. They seem to just want to pitch every VC under the sun. And it's like, well, if that guy doesn't even invest in that area, you're kind of just wasting your own time. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your money. It's uh, and, and the other thing that I think is super important, I think it's uh, there's a lot of talk about there being a startup bubble right now. I think the show Shark Tank uh, is somewhat to blame because everyone has the idea of, oh, I can start a company now. And sure, sure you can. Uh, but receiving money or receiving investment is not always a great idea if the person investing in you uh, doesn't have a network or mentoring or relationships to help you. Sure. Um, if it's just a private investor who, who wants to all of a sudden get involved in this scene, you may be able to get you know a, a pretty significant sum of investment, but they're not going to help you be able to take the next steps necessarily. And so I think it's not just about receiving investment, but making but looking at who you're receiving investment from, and sure. can they really help you grow? Because otherwise, I think that receiving investment could actually hurt your company. Sure, because like, would you say that just because basically you can burn that money really quick, and if they don't really open any doors for you or help you kind of move to the next stage, it's it's kind of pointless. Uh, it's a little bit of both. So, so for example, if you were to take an early, early round of investment, say ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, which is what a lot of like super small investments happen, um, not necessarily from like a, a VC, but more of like your private investors. 
um, all of a sudden you've given up some equity, you haven't necessarily grown, and that's going to that may make other investors in the future more hesitant. Right. And you may also, you know, make some decisions for your company that are not in its best interest versus being lean and efficient and figuring out really your market and uh, and then going and doing things with a, a better round. Sure. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and that's that's actually really good advice. I would also say there's a, a, a gap that exists between your your first round, like an early, early first round investment and uh, kind of reaching that next step. So a gap between your 50 th- 25 to 50,000 dollar investments and your, you know, 125 to 250 um that you want to be careful you don't get caught up in and that's the uh, the other part of it. Sure. No, I, I think that's really good advice. So let's maybe talk about pass it down and uh kind of your own startup. Absolutely. So, so- Oh, Maybe just give a little bit of a background, kind of what it is and why you started it. Absolutely. So I have wanted to create Pass It Down since 2010. It's uh, been something that's, I guess you would say, just been burning inside of me to really, really do. Sure. Um, my mom had multiple sclerosis and dementia, um, and she had it from the day I was born. So she she brought me in uh, knowing that she was sick and uh, and raised me so. And... By the time I was in high school, my mom's uh, short-term memory was essentially gone. Uh, multiple sclerosis uh, and dementia are, are both some pretty uh, tragic diseases yeah, when it comes totally. to your ability to remember, your ability to communicate. And so um, I realized whenever I, w- I was sitting with my mom uh, in a nursing home later on that uh, there were all these things I wanted to know about her you know, stories that I wanted to be able to know, um, little things, big things, sure. uh, everything from, you know, what was really the music she liked, uh, growing up to what advice would she want to give me as an adult? And, uh, there was no way for me to be able to know this stuff. You know, I, I never doubted that my mom loved me, but I just, I can never be able to access all these things I wanted to know. Sure. And so I, I started thinking of, what would be the best way to be able to capture someone's life story for them to be able to to leave a to leave a legacy to leave their memories for someone um, and what would that what would that be and so I, I realized that I, I would love to have videos of my mom because sure. there's nothing like being able to see someone totally. and to be able to hear their voice I mean I know people who uh, when they've lost someone uh, quickly out of the blue they'll hold on to voicemail. It's just because they want to go back and hear that person's voice. Totally. And so Pass It Down was the, the culmination of all those events to create a, a web and mobile platform that would allow you to be able to leave a legacy by answering questions about different moments of your life and answering those questions in video, audio, text, or photos, or any combination that you wanted so you would feel comfortable telling a story the way that you saw fit. Sure. No, I, I think it's a really good idea. And I think like I, I kind of feel the same way you do with like your mother that I do with like, say, my grandparents. Right. And like um, my dad's uh, grand, uh, dad, he passed away like when I was pretty young in the early 90s. And so, you know, like we still have like old family videos. And I, I remember like just going back sometimes and, and watching those. And so, you know, just having somewhere where you don't have to like pull out the VHS and the <laughs> VHS player and, you know, just to go online and, and check that out. I think what you're doing is really awesome. 
Thank you. No, we're, uh, we're, we're really, really excited about it. And, uh, you know, the other component about it that uh, I, we came to along the way was the, the social aspect of it, which is that you, you have the option to, uh, to keep your stories private always. But if sure. you want to share your story publicly to a question, then you can. And the really, really cool thing is you can see all the stories for one question. Interesting. So you can go and, and look up the story of how did you meet your spouse and see a thousand stories side by side to one question. That's, that's really cool. Actually. That's our long-term goal is huh. the, uh, the ability to, to sort stories by a question because I think we'll see similarities and we'll also see uh, some very cool differences that happen to questions. Sure. No, fa- fair enough. Um, so is it out now or is it coming in 2016? It, it is in beta right now. Okay. Uh, it is coming in 2016. It's uh, beta testing. Uh, if we we're going to go back and say what, what advice would I give to someone going into a company is sure. a valuable process. It's one where you, you learn a lot and the way that you think that things should be is not always accurate to what people want. Sure. And so uh, we're, we're very excited, though, to be coming out in 2016 and just taking the time to make our product right. Sure. So how many people would you say is a good amount to have beta test your product? I, I know no matter who you ask, you get a different answer, but I'm kind of curious to know what you'd say. I think it depends on your product, for one. And I know that's sure. a, a bit of a gray answer, uh, but it, it really does. It depends on the scale. It depends on the size. Um, and you want to make sure that the data you're getting from the beta is accurate. So if you get too many beta testers and you don't have a, a good way to be able to sort through the, the feedback you're getting, um, there's no point in having several sure. thousand people. Um, but if you have too short a span or, and your, your demographics aren't large enough or you haven't really adopted your right audience, you're not going to get good feedback either. So I think that starting... Um, with anywhere from you know 50 to 100 people and then going up through several tiers in the beta, you shouldn't consider a beta as uh, really one one thing. It's uh, It should be several tiers where you grow and you scale it to see how it does when it scales and you compare the feedback is super valuable. So maybe start off uh, small and then grow it up from uh, 100 to 1,000 to several thousand people and, and to, to start that way. Sure. No, I think that that's actually really good advice. So is it an open beta um, or is it kind of a closed beta right now? We're in the closed beta phase okay. right now, sure. but you can go to passitdown.com and enter your email address and we'll be opening the beta very, very soon. Awesome. And I'll post that in the show notes so people can uh, go there as well. Absolutely. Sure. So I'm kind of curious. Um, we only have maybe another like five, 10 minutes to go. Um, in the show, and I know you were on the debate team, and <laughs> I, I, I know we talked about this before in our, uh, like when we've chatted in the past and even a little bit before we started recording. Um, any tips for public speaking? Because I I fear it, to be 100% honest with you, and I know there's a lot of kind of people in the tech space and other spaces that listen to the show that also don't dislike or fear public speaking. Well, uh, you know, the first thing I would say to make everyone feel better um, is that public speaking has been the number one fear, uh, survey-wise, for over seventy years. Sure. Uh, wow. Really? Yeah. The, the the long time joke is that the number two fear is death. The number one fear is public speaking. <laughs> People would rather die than get up and speak. Um, that might. That's and, probably so, true. <laughs> 
So the thing I would say is one, you know, just take comfort in the fact that it's something that everyone fears. Okay. Um, I really believe it's people are not born great public speakers. And I think the people that fear public speaking uh, believe that that's the case. They believe that I wasn't born with the gift of being able to speak uh, and to feel comfortable doing so. So I'm not going to, and I'm going to hate it whenever I get a chance to do that. And so this fear overwhelms them and it prevents them from really being able to uh, communicate in a way that affects their relationships, it affects their work, it affects um, their overall life, and it can for their entire lives. And sure. that's a, a really sad thing. So the first thing I would say is that uh, you have to look at public speaking the way that you would look at exercise. Okay. The more you do it, the more you practice, the better you're going to become. Sure. It's not something you're you're born good at. And so that means that you need to develop good public speaking habits. That's really what I believe in and it's what I teach when I teach public speaking is that you need to feel comfortable and the best way to do that is to develop habits that over the time, over time will continue to make you a better speaker. Okay, and so, what would those be? Sure. So a uh, few things. One, if you're trying to memorize a speech, which are a lot of people do, like I need to learn this one speech, Sure. don't consider it one speech. It's not one long components. So say you have a 10-minute speech you want to give at work, 15-minute mm -hmm. speech. Don't sit there and try to memorize it from the first minute to the last because if you stumble at any way or at any point, you're going to get caught up looking in your head trying to figure out, now, what was I supposed to say at this point? Right. Okay. So, so instead, break your speech down into uh, several points and consider it really five or six speeches. And okay. practice those five or six points. So you may think like, well, this is the way I should introduce myself and practice that. Just practice your introduction. This is the, uh, the point I want to make about this particular position and just practice that. So don't consider it one long part. Sure. Uh, Would you practice in front of like a mirror or something or is that kind of just or, or just wherever you feel comfortable? Number one rule actually uh, that I would do is record yourself. Okay. And you're not going to like it. Sure. No likes recording themselves. You're not going to like the way you look. Uh, you're not going to like the way you sound. You're going to see things that you do that you're going to hate. Sure. But it's the single best thing that you can do to be better at public speaking. Interesting. Before I give any legal argument, um, before every uh, competition I ever went to, and what I make all the people I teach do is to sit them in front of the camera and, and make them practice and make them watch because you will make yourself better when you record yourself. And uh, yes, I know it's painful, but it'll help. Sure. Uh, a few other things. Be sure. careful with this one. It's uh, it's silly, but it helps. If you struggle with enunciation, which a lot of people do, Okay. Uh, one quick thing you can do is to put a pen between your teeth. A pen or pen? A pen, pencil. Oh, okay, okay. And to, uh, to read a paragraph like it, you're going to force yourself to over-enunciate um, and, and force your mouth to over-enunciate, which will make you a better speaker. Oh, interesting. Huh. And then uh, finally, I would say people often, when they speak, uh, their breathing changes. They don't even realize they're doing it. They either start breathing too quickly because they're nervous. Sure. Or they uh, hold their breath and they're about to start uh, turn blue. Uh, so really and truly, if you can just pay attention to how you're breathing and just try to breathe normal and calm yourself down, uh, those are things that will really help you when it comes to public speaking. Sure. So you, you mentioned you, you teach public speaking as well. Kind of 
like what do you, is it like you go into a business and, and kind of do it or you do it at conferences or a little bit of both? A little bit of both. So I still help teach the uh, LSU speech and debate team, which is where I uh, I competed and was the captain of. Okay. Uh, so I enjoy that that experience a good bit. I help teach at the law school here uh, with the, uh, the the teams that uh, compete in moot court competitions and help prepare them to give oral arguments in front of judges. Okay. And I'm a mentor at a uh, nonprofit accelerator that has about uh, 10 to 15 companies come through three times a year, and I help teach how to pitch your company to those uh, to those startups. And uh, in the business world, I think the big thing is that you need to uh, feel comfortable telling your story. And the other thing is you need to be authentic. Don't feel like uh, if you hear one great speaker, you need to be that person. You need to be true to yourself and what your style is. If you're a more serious person, don't try to emulate the styles of someone that is uh, a big personality that jokes a lot. Sure. People, uh, you can't fake authenticity. That's the good thing. And if you are really speaking about something you believe in and you know and you're comfortable about, then people will know and identify with that. Right. No, that, I think that's really good advice. So is is Whoopal getting a, a, a Chris Cummings public speaking class? <laughs> I uh, There uh, might actually be a, uh, a new company coming in 2016 I'll have to tell you about. Interesting. Yeah, no, I would love to uh, have you back on the show to talk more about that because it, it's so important for so many people, right? And even just, I consider public speaking even talking in a boardroom to coworkers, right? I think it, like, so everybody does it multiple times throughout a, a week. I, I consider public speaking to be as simple as the conversations you have at home. Oh, um, interesting. It, it, it really and truly uh, goes to every, to every facet of what you do. I mean, I think communications is critically important. And that's why uh, learning to feel more comfortable doing it and practicing the good habits that are necessary to be better at it is so important. No, I, I think that's that's really good advice and, and that's awesome. But uh, sadly, Chris, we're out of time. So <laughs> maybe let's close the show with kind of promoting um, your companies and yourself where people can find them online. Absolutely. My name is Chris Cummings. I am the founder of Pass It Down, www.passitdown.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Pass It Down. We'll be launching the best way to tell your story and your family's story uh, in 2016, and we would love to have you be a part of the beta. I am also the co-founder of Whoople, W-O-O-P-L-E.com. And if you're looking for the best way to be able to uh, train your employees or have an internal education platform, a communication platform, we would love to be able to help you. And if you just have a, a startup idea and you, uh, you want to talk, uh, my email is chris at swiftwingventures.com. Uh, hit me up and uh, I'd love to talk. I love technology. Sure, man. No, thanks. That's awesome. And I'll post those links in the show notes so uh, people can uh, just go to the website and check them out. But again, thanks for taking the time out of your your day to do this. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me and uh, look forward to being able to be back sometime. Awesome, man. All right. We'll talk soon. Okay. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can visit past shows at buildingthefutureshow.com. If you're going to the Startup Expo on February 16th and 17th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and want to record an episode, please contact me. 
The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Check them out at electricmantra.com. Until next time, keep building the future.